Good morning, everyone. Could you turn your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1? Thank you, Bert and Jean Ellen. And I would second what Bert said about Jean Ellen. I, I love when she's uh, playing by herself alone, and I like to s listen to her myself. I could sit there and listen to her all day. All the piano players there are great. Robin, Mary, and we got a special Mary, and is accompanied by her brother Paul on acoustic. Mary's going to sing at the end of the second session today, the end of our service. So I'm looking forward to that. I've heard a lot of good things about her singing, and also Paul's very talented himself. So, as um, I think I've said this before, I, like, I, I like I like diversity, just like God does, you know. So I I can't. I mean, I go up and play. I enjoy playing in front of you guys all, and you're, you're very patient with some of my stuff. But uh, I like when other people are doing. When I came, the church I came from, at Grace Bible Church, we had a, we had a pretty cool band. We didn't have a drummer, but we had you know we had uh, we used to do a cappella, you know, like the four four pe four people, five people, I think it was. And um, so when I used to get, I was mad. George was the, who was the song leader. And I said, and uh, I said, why am I always doing the the, high, the girls' parts, the high parts? Like, you got the you can do, you can do it. It's like so. Uh, thanks a lot. I'm killing myself up there. So I just want to relax, have a nice low part, you know. High cappella is really a, is, is is a lot of discipline to do that. So yeah, so we're very blessed. And the, the Christmas party was great. It was, it was, it was great. Um, I had a great time. I thought the one last year was great. I thought this one maybe even topped it believe it or not, and uh, a lot of great food. A lot of people uh, brought some uh, family members and friends, uh, so that was good. I think they, everybody seemed to enjoy themselves, so the visitors, that was good, and uh, they got to meet, uh, uh, rub elbows with all of us, and um, the crazy crowd, that we, the crazy crowd that we are, and uh, anyways, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, I love the great thing about doctrine. It brings people uh, who would never probably rub elbows with each other. They rub elbows with each other, so it's just a, it really is cool, you know, because it's how the Lord does things. He, t he brings people together, which uh, and it's obviously supernatural. That would never be. I mean, let's case in point. I'm from Massachusetts, okay. I'm a Yankee, and I'm your pastor here down in Alabama, in the Deep South. They're like cracking up down here. Some of the people I talk to, like, buddy, could you ever think of that? I'm like, yeah, isn't that weird? That's God for you, you know. So people in Massachusetts, you're gonna be down in Alabama, and I was like, yeah, it's like, what's wrong with that? Anyways, just don't come down here and don't bring your politics, I just tell them. <laughs> don't mess up our place, just like you messed up the north. So anyways, all right, so uh, should we at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1? It's kind of interesting, we're now in the, in the divine warrior psalm of uh, Habakkuk chapter 3. Oh, before I go any further, I would like to say thank God for pharmaceutical, <laughs> for the uh, uh, antibiotics, because man, I'll tell you what, I, th I was telling Bert before class, if I didn't, if we didn't have something like the today with the antibiotic, years ago, if you, I, you know, you'd have bronchitis and then it turns into, uh, what do you call it, you couldn't fight it, and then, you know, because you, know, you didn't have antibiotics, then you got pneumonia, then you died. I mean, I probably, I, had, I think of all the times I was sick when I was a kid in my 20s and everything, I'd be dead a long time ago if it wasn't the antibiotics. So I am my beast with the pharmaceutical company, especially when it comes to dementia and Alzheimer's treatment of them, and they have no, uh, I have problems with some of the things that they prescribe because of my mother. <clears throat> trouble she had, but uh, I tell you, you can't beat the antibiotics. Like you know, they just give you that, take it for ten days, and you're done. And and so I actually, my voice has come back. Like I, you know, I have, so it's nice, and I don't have to have a suck on a lot, a, a, a cough drop the whole you know service, so I could speak without coughing. You know, so anyways, uh, thank you for being patient the last couple of weeks with my my voice. It's kind of aggravating. You really have to you know concentrate and. Uh, one of the things with music I, I learned from an opera singer and all those different things over the years has been about breathing. So sometimes I go too fast where I don't take a breath, but 
So I, I'm, just, I'm trying real hard to overcome that as, the, as I get older. So anyways, one day, if I live long enough and I'm 85, you know, or buddy's age, you know, whatever it is, and uh, uh, I'll, be, uh, I'll, have, I'll be slowing down by that. I don't know. We'll never know. But anyway, so back at chapter 3, verse 1, it's really also cool that on our Wednesday classes, remember our, this Wednesday is our last class before the Christmas break, so we're going to just miss uh, Sunday, the 24th, Christmas Eve, and it's Wednesday the 27th. Those are the only two classes that we're going to miss, all right? And we'll, we'll have a, a New Year's Eve service, uh, you know, on a Sunday, the usual time, but we'll, uh, we'll do the Lord's Supper at that time, okay? That's why we didn't do the Lord's Supper uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, with the Day of the Lord series uh, on Wednesday, it's kind of, uh, uh, it's obviously very exciting. I mean, I was talking to somebody, I think I was talking to Ray, and he, he really enjoyed it, and yeah, it's, it's exciting because it's a lot of, we're talking about prophecy. And so this week we're, we're going to continue our study of the 70 weeks prophecy. And this is where, you know, we're studying that because of the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period is a part of the eschatological day of the Lord, the day of the Lord that's yet future. And that will take place after the rapture of the church. Remember, the rapture delivers us from the wrath to come during the tribulation period. And we'll be studying the second advent of Christ. We'll be studying um, the millennial reign, the he new heavens and the new earth. All these things, and, and the, uh, the Russian invasion of Israel, Ezekiel 38 and 39, which is talked about in Joel 2, and, other, and, uh, and also um, uh, just the whole, uh, oh, the seven sealed trumpet and bold judgments, we'll be going through that. So there'll be a lot of cool things that we'll be studying. And the reason why I think it's cool also is because it's tying into what we're doing here in Habakkuk chapter 3 in the Divine Warrior Psalm. So we're really starting to get into, we, we looked at, uh, we answered the question last week about whether it's, um, prophetic, historical, or a little bit of both. Uh, and we answered that question uh, last week in our last session, and now we're going to start digging in verse by verse um, into this, um, in this in this particular passage. In fact, we're just going to spend the first and the second session on just the third verse. And it's really a fantastic verse. It's really cool. So we'll be going back to Isaiah 63. So I think you're going to really enjoy it. And again, it ties into the Day of the Lord series that we're teaching on Wednesdays. All right, so without, uh, I think that's about it. We, um, uh, we won't, uh, oh, by there's no, again, there's no uh, corporate prayer meeting. We usually do it on the last Wednesday of the, mo uh, the month. We're not doing it, of course, we won't have class that day. We have no tw the 24th and the 27th, we don't have classes. Just remember that. Don't show up here. There's nobody to be here, all right? And don't, I don't want you to think that the rapture took place already either, too. All right, so without further ado, I look around, you all know what to do. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it's a distinct honor and privilege to come before your throne of grace. We know that we see, we're seated at your right hand because of our union identification with your Son, Jesus Christ, as we enter into prayer to, to you this morning as a corporate unit. I just thank you, Father, for the sheep that you have uh, given me the responsibility to oversee and to feed them the Word of God. 
And we just uh, thank you, Father, for each person that's here this morning. We thank you for this uh, beautiful building that uh, you've uh, given to us and, uh, and also the people who serve that uh, maintain the building and all that they do. I thank you for the leadership of our church and all that they do that uh, many people don't see and, uh, and the encouragement and the help that they give me uh, and, and through various uh, situations. And I just thank you, Father, for them. And uh, I just pray you would give us uh, the leadership in our church, the wisdom and the moral courage to lead this congregation in a fashion that brings glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. I also thank you for our, uh, our political and military leaders and, and uh, all those who serve our country, uh, whether they're paramilitary organizations like the police and the Huntsville police and other police uh, uh, off, uh, places around here in various towns and counties. I just thank you for them here in Alabama. And also, I just thank you for our leaders in the executive, judicial, legislative branches of our federal, state, and local government and military. I pray you give them the wisdom and the moral courage to lead this country, raise up more individuals in our government that have a respect for our Constitution and establishment principles, and uh, also uh, even believers that are, um, uh, that are faithful to you, that know your word, and thus have wisdom, divine wisdom, which is much needed in our country and to influence policy in our nation. And we know that our president and all our leaders, are, uh, their, their hearts are in uh, your hand and you can bring in whatever circumstances and people's blessings, adversity necessary to uh, influence their decision and their policy making. So uh, we know that everything is, is well in hand and your son uh, rules this earth and all of creation as he's seated at your right hand, awaiting his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. And we know that we're the bride of Christ, and we're going to reign with your son during the millennial reign and also on into eternity. We thank you for that, Father. So we pray that you, all of us in this ministry would uh, live our lives in a godly fashion, and all that involves practicing the command to love one another in light of the wonderful things that you've done for us at our justification, are doing for us now, and will do for us in the future. I pray, Father, this morning that each person will be spoken to individually and in their walk with you, and also... Uh, all of us as a corporate unit, I pray the Spirit would use, uh, be used mightily into speaking to your people, helping them to understand, to uh, learn, to concentrate, and to make careful application of what they're being taught. I also pray that you would empower me to deliver the full counsel to this morning to your people with regards to this passage in Habakkuk 3.3, which speaks of the second advent of your son, Jesus Christ, which we, his bride, will be a part of. And I just pray, Father, you help me to do so with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power. So we pray for this service and this first session, Father, in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. You should be at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1, and uh, we'll be looking at uh, verse 3 in the first session, the, the A part, and then the B part of, uh, of uh, Habakkuk chapter 3 in the second session. And the reason why I'm taking two, uh, two lessons is because of the content. Um, everything's determined by the content of the verse will determine how fast they go through the passage. So a lot of times with narrative, like historical narrative, like when we go do the book of Genesis and Exodus one day, I mean, it won't be surprising if I do a chapter in one, in one class. So that will happen from time to time. But things like Paul's epistles, or John's epistles, you know, there's a lot of things being said, and so a lot of things need to be explained and developed, and so, so you understand what's being taught so that you can make applications. So content always determines uh, how long I'm staying on a verse. So uh, in the first session, in the A part, 
uh, which we're actually talking about the first couple of statements there, prophetic statements. We have the Lord Jesus Christ will come from Teman and Mount Paran at his second advent. So uh, as we noted, uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 19, is actually a prayer uh, which the prophet Habakkuk offered up to the God of Israel, which he directed to be sung in the temple as part of the worship of the God of Israel. So this is actually a psalm, a song sort of to a lyrics, lyrics to a song that was to be sung in the temple. And it's called the Divine Warrior Psalm by biblical scholars today. And it has the theme of divine warrior. Uh, God is a divine warrior. In fact, we know that Jesus Christ, who is the second member of the Trinity, he is the divine warrior that is being spoken about in this passage because he is the one, not the, the Spirit or the Father, that comes back to earth to start the Father's kingdom here on the earth. And so uh, we see that uh, we also noted that Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, we answer the very important question, is this passage the Divine Warrior Psalm, historical, uh, prophetic, speaking of something in the future, or a little bit of both. Well, we noted uh, last week that it's not only prophetic, referring to the events of the 70th week and second advent to Christ, but it's also alluding to the mighty acts of God, which he performed on behalf of the nation of Israel. And uh, I wasn't going to do it, but I want to show for you um, a, pass, uh, a slide, a, a PowerPoint slide here. Uh, I use this, I'm using this on my uh, Day of the Lord series, so again, which is very convenient. It's a chart I developed. It's about the 70 weeks of Daniel. And uh, so what I bring this up is because the, the 70th week of Daniel, which is yet future and not yet fulfilled and won't take place until after the rapture, is what is being discussed in, in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15. Now, uh, the 70 weeks prophecy is found in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. We're going through this in our Day of the Lord series on Wednesdays. So uh, I'm not going to go into too, too much detail here, but just so you know enough to get through this passage to understand its context prophetically. Uh, we saw these 70 weeks are actually 490 prophetic years, and uh, 69 of these weeks, 483 prophetic years, have been fulfilled in history literally right to the day. And uh, it started off this prophecy with Antiochus Epiphanes, the, uh, uh, not Antiochus Epiphanes, but um, we see that... Uh, the, uh, the Xerxes Longamanus, his decree in 444 BC, starts off the 70 weeks prophecy, and it ends with the second advent of Christ. So right now, uh, after the you know Daniel 9, 24, and 25 have been fulfilled in history, literally, uh, starting with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem in 444 BC, where the book of Nehemiah records, and Ezra, people like that, and Haggai. And then we see the completion of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem was uh, pro pro prophesied there, and it's been fulfilled in history. And then we have Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He presented himself as the, the Messiah. That marked the end of the, the, uh, the 69th week, the 483rd, 483 prophetic years. So now that verse 26 has also been fulfilled in history because it talks about the interval between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week, and this interval is over 2,000 years now. And we saw that in Daniel 9.26 prophesied the crucifixion of Christ, and also, <coughs> not only that, but the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans. All of Daniel 9.24, 25, and 26 has been literally fulfilled in history. 
and it's so staggering the fulfilled prophecies in the yet, fulfill, yet to be fulfilled prophecies in the book of Daniel that modern scholars in the last uh, 100, 150 years, 200 years have said that, uh, and it actually goes back to uh, Porphyry as we saw in our Day of the Lord series, back into the, uh, uh, the, the, the 7th century AD, they're saying that this was not a 6th century BC production Daniel, written by Daniel, but it's actually from the 2nd century BC. During the, uh, speaking of the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, and there's no historical evidence for that at all. They just do th say that because they deny the supernatural. They don't believe that there could be fulfilled prophecy. So the book of Daniel is a great book to prove uh, there is, the God of the Bible, the Bible is divine in inspiration. Now, we see that the church age is presently during this period. But, as we also pointed out, and we'll see this in our Day of the Lord series, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12, also 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, uh, to make very clear in other passages is that the church has to be removed at the rapture for this to take place. Paul says this clearly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The restrainer in that passage is the Holy Spirit, because only God can restrain evil, and he indwells the church permanently. Every single member of us has the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit indwelling us permanently. So that the fact that the Spirit, when He's working through us, as we obey what He's teaching us in Scripture, is the reason why this, we're the salt of the earth and we're restraining evil. So once the church is gone, now, and the Holy Spirit is localized right now in the church, that's going to no be, longer be the case. And there, Paul, Paul says, when that happens, when He's removed, then we have the manifestation of the Antichrist. So if we're the rapture generation, uh, then uh, he's walking the earth. He could be walking the earth right now. And uh, it's ridiculous for Christians to even try to speculate uh, where he is and all that stuff. We know the Bible tells us, and we'll see this in Daniel 9.26, he's a Roman, okay? And yes, Rome is nothing right now, not for very long. It'll eventually be what we are, okay? There'd be a, it's actually United States and Europe already in place for him to walk into. And that's where you'll have the f final stage of the Roman Empire, which is uh, mentioned as the, uh, the, the ten horns on the fourth beast of Daniel 7, and also uh, the little horn is the Antichrist on that beast. So that is yet future. So that is, everything's based upon the next prophetic event that we're waiting for is the rapture when we get our resurrection bodies and we're removed and delivered from the tribulation period, the wrath to come. And also remember, Jesus Christ is not a wife beater, so he's not going to permit us to go through that period. So we're all going up, regardless of uh, you know our, whether we're faithful or in apostasy, and we'll be studying that, the different views of the rapture. Now, we see that I'm showing you all this because this period that we're studying about in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15 is prophetic, and alluding to some Old Testament passages, but it's primarily prophetic, speaking of the 70th week of Daniel, which once the church is gone, we have Antichrist has to uh, establish a treaty with Israel, and it's a seven-year treaty, and that is the 70th week, seven years period. It's broken up into two sections. We have the first three and a half years, kind of like a cold war. There's wars and rumors of war. It's where Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul says they'll be saying the people living at that time were saying we got peace and safety. They'll be thinking they're in the utopia, the millennial reign already. It's Satan's counterfeit, but little do they know that this guy is a counterfeit, the greatest of all counterfeits, Antichrist, and he breaks the treaty and halfway through uh, this 70th week, and by the way, the prophecy is based upon a, the Jewish calendar, which is 360-day calendar. 
not uh, like 365.25 days it is in our, in our Julian calendar. And I was talking to Kurt, Kurt uh, uh, the other day, last Wednesday, and he was talking, they, they want to go back, to, they want to go to a 360-day calendar, the people of the world, okay? So that's very important. It's interesting that it's going to do that, and they're thinking of doing that. And so uh, we see that that starts, that, that when Antichrist breaks the treaty, and Paul talks about this, Daniel 9.27 talks about this. Daniel 9.27 says abominations, okay? I think the NIV just has it in the singular. In the Hebrew, it's plural. Most modern translations have it in the plural. That's important because there's two abominations, and one in particular that will take place that marks the breaking of the treaty that will trigger the Armageddon campaign, the Great Tribulation, all right? So one is the Antichrist. He sits in the, in the Jewish temple that will be rebuilt at that time, and he will proclaim himself as God, and he'll sit between the cherubim of the mercy seat. Okay, so they'll have a new, another Ark of the Covenant, and they will sit, he'll sit between those cherubim and, just like, and speak to people just like God did with Moses. Okay? Well, there's another one spoken about in, in Revelation 13 that the false prophet who promotes the worship of the Antichrist during that period... He sets up an image of the Antichrist. I don't know if it's, they'll use AI, or I don't know what they're going to do, but he makes it come to life, it says. And I think it's actually literally going to make it come to life because, you know, Satan can do, perform all kinds of miracles. He has that power during that time. That Jesus mentions this in Matthew 24. And Matthew 24 is very important. You can't understand Matthew 24 unless you know the 70 weeks prophecy, in particular the 70th week of Daniel 9.27. He says, when you see, he's talking to the next generation that'll see this, that'll be living during this time. When you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, okay? The one standing, the image of the Antichrist, that's the time that Jesus says the Jews at that time need to flee. And that'll be the final dispersion of Jews in history. And they'll come back uh, at the second advent with the help of elect angels and Gentile believers during that period. So, and the second advent of Christ ends this period. So this is what we're talking about in this divine warrior psalm, uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15. It's speaking primarily, because it's primarily prophetic, it's speaking of this last three and a half years of the 70th week. In particular, today we'll see, it's speaking of the second advent of Christ. So what we're actually going to do as well is talk about primarily the second advent of Christ in this verse today, and we're going to actually uh, track his military movements during this time. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, you know, he, and I used to think this too, oh, he's going to orbit the earth, and he's going to land on the Mount of Olives. Yes, he is. But he's got other things to do. And we know from his tracking his movements from Isaiah 63, Habakkuk chapter 3, that he's going to go into a place what we know today as Jordan. And by the way, it's interesting. It talks about the nations that now occupy Jordan They'll, they'll go up against the Antichrist and actually hold him off. They won't fall to him. And, they, and, and, uh, and, and in fact, the ancient name Edom will be used again. And that place is where we have today Jordan, the kingdom of Jordan. So this is where Jesus Christ will confront, I believe, the Antichrist there. There's a passage in, in Habakkuk 3, 13, and 14 that talk about this as well, when we get to it in detail. We actually, actually kills him, Jesus does. And we also see uh, this, we track his, his movements here. There's a lot of stuff that talks about uh, the seven seal trumpet of bull judgments of this period, the tribulation period, the last three and a half years of the trip, uh, 70th week. 
But today we'll be looking primarily at the second advent of Christ. And it's just a fantastic passage, this verse. And so we're going to take two classes to do it. So that's the, that's the prophetic context that we're, we're speaking in at this particular time in this passage in Habakkuk chapter 3. So let's look at Habakkuk chapter 3. Look at verse 1. will be the whole chapter. And then we'll look at verse 3 in detail. And the reason why we do this, we're going to study the verse in its context. Okay? That's how false teachers, false, uh, uh, teachers and uh, people who deceive people, they take a verse out of context. Nothing I, I can't stand when I go see somebody teaching. They, they take, they're, they're working on a verse. They read from a verse, and then they're gone for the rest of the day. They're not even close to being what, talking about what the passage says or taking the time for, to, to, to explain to the people anything about it because they don't respect their people. And uh, they, they, they don't want to think, they don't, oh, my people couldn't handle that. Well, that's right, because you treat them like babies. They're going to be babies their whole lives. You know, that's what some people, some of these guys are like. So look at Habakkuk 3.1, please. Habakkuk 3.1 says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shagayanoth. O Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Salah. His glory covered the heavens, and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth, and he looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled, and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. Now, it's interesting. I like to say, especially verses, uh, verse 6 and verse uh, 3, you see all these alien movies. Guess who's going to be the alien that they, Satan's trying to prepare everybody for? Jesus and the elect angels and the tribulational saints and resurrection bodies, the church and resurrection bodies, Old Testament saints and resurrection bodies. We are going to be the aliens that they're going to turn their weapons toward. And guess what? The aliens win, baby. <laughs> Not uh, Will Smith and whatever. So <laughs> look at verse 7. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. Salah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and arrived. <laughs> you know, it's pronounced right. I think in the previous class, a riv. What is he saying up there? Hey, I'm old. I don't know why I say some things I say. Like I, I didn't mean to say that. No, it's rive. This is how you pronounce it. Towards, some of you probably said, I didn't know what any difference you would, I, you could have fooled me. Yeah, well, that drives me crazy if I mispronounce it. Torrents of water swept by, the deep roared, and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying, flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. And this is apocalyptic language, too. Right? Revelation's written that way. A lot of Zechariah's written that way. Daniel's written that way. Apocalyptic literature will talk about what that is in this study as well. And it says, in wrath, you strode the earth, and in anger, you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness, Antichrist. You stripped him from head to foot, Salah. With his own spear, you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard, and my heart pounded. Now, Habakkuk's responding to what he just got, this vision. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. 
Kind of reminds you of Daniel's response when he got uh, uh, his, some of his uh, prophecies in, in the book of Daniel. And, but he doesn't fall dead like Daniel did. Because then it says in verse 16, the end of it, yet, and he has his faith, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. That's speaking of the Babylonian Empire. Remember, God says he's going to judge the Babylonians eventually. So that's what he's referring to. Though, the, and of course, I th he's probably alluding also to the enemies of Israel, the Antichrist, during the tribulation period because the divine warrior saw him. So then it says in verse 17, it's talking about his contemporary situation now. Though the fig tree does not bud because of the Babylonian invasions, and there's no grapes on the vines, though the crop of the, the olive crop fails and the field produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, remember they're an agricultural economy, it's going to be devastated from the wars. Yet, despite this, he says, and this is where I can't wait to get to this passage, talks about his faith. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, even though he's, they're going to lose everything. And I like to say, how we, I mean, we, we, there's so many things to talk about as far as the spiritual life is concerned with these verses, okay? And we'll really learn a lot. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, he says. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, and he enables me to go on the heights for the director of music on my stringed instruments. So if you look at verse 3, our passage today, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Param, Salah. His glory covered the heavens, and his praise filled the earth. My translation of that verse, God will travel from Teman, then the Holy One will travel from Mount Paran, Salah. His majesty will cover the heavens so that his praise will certainly fill the earth. Now, we see that Habakkuk 3.3 contains four prophetic statements with an interjection placed after the second. The interjection is the word Salah. We'll talk about what that means. Now, the first prophetic statement, as we just read in my translation and your Bibles, the NIV, asserts that God will travel from Teman. And the second asserts that the Holy One will travel from Mount Paran. And these are geographical locations that we've talked about in the book of Obadiah as well. And uh, we'll see, uh, uh, we'll talk about where they are today. I'll show you a map of where they are today and, uh, so that you can get an idea. So these are geographical locations that the Lord will be going to. So both of these prophetic statements refer again to the actions of the Lord Jesus Christ at his second advent. His second advent ends the 70th week of Daniel, and simultaneously the times of the Gentiles, which started with the Babylonian invasions in the 7th century BC. Okay? Now, the second advent and the, and the rapture, what's the difference? Well, big differences. Uh, we'll be studying this when we get to uh, the day, go further into the Day of the Lord series. The rapture is invisible to the world. It's the resurrection of the church. It results in the tribulation period, whereas the second advent is everyone will see this. Jesus will orbit the earth with us and the elect angels and the tribulational martyrs and their resurrection bodies and Old Testament saints and their resurrection bodies. And so uh, that's visible to the whole world. Every eye shall see him, Revelation 1-7. He will land on the Mount of Olives, whereas in the rapture he never touches the earth. He takes us back to his father's house. And that's interesting. He has to do this. He ha the rapture, one of the reasons that, uh, uh, that shows that the rapture is a, a, a support of the rapture is that Jesus, the Jews understood the marriage process, okay? They were engaged, and then the marriage was consummated when the husband come back at any time, and he takes his bride, you know, to end the, uh, the, uh, the engagement process, takes her back to his father's house, and they consummate the marriage, 
I don't know if I would like that today, but we wouldn't like that. So I go back to the Father's house, and that's cosmic. So the, that's what the rapture is, taking us, the bride of Christ, back to his Father's house. John 14, 1-3 talks about that. Jesus, the first time he ever talks about the rapture is there. It's a mystery. It's not known to Old Testament saints. 1 Corinthians 15, 50-58 teaches us that. It's a mystery in a sense. Old Testament saints didn't know about this. It's new revelation given to the apostles. Okay? So it's in our New Testament. So the rapture is invisible. It's the time the church gets its resurrection body. When they come back in a second. And then it's uh, unlike the rapture. It's visible to the whole world and the church is coming back with him. It says that at the beginning of chapter 19 of Revelation, the church is in married, getting married in heaven with Jesus. So they're coming back with it. As you follow the chronology, they, we're coming back with him to start the kingdom. Okay? So very, very important we understand these distinctions. Well, there's more I can give you, but that should suffice. So we see both of these prophetic statements here on the back of chapter 3 refer to the actions of the Lord Jesus Christ at his second advent. Now, like the plural form of the noun Elohim, which you usually see in your Old Testament, it's translated God, we have another word for God, Eloah. Okay, and that uh, emphasizes, like Elohim does, the transcendent character of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Israel. And so, in fact, remember the God of Israel, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, in the being of God, the three persons, doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the reason why we say first, second, and third person of the Trinity, as we study in our Trinity series, is because of the doctrine of procession. The Son comes from the Father, sent by the Father, and the Spirit sent by the Son and the Father. So the reason why Jesus is second member of the Trinity, we say, is not second in importance, but second in the sense that he comes from the Father, then the Spirit comes from the Son and the Father, thus the Holy Spirit is the, uh, the third member, okay? So they all have equal, they all have the same divine attributes, and they are in the being, of, see, in the being of Bill, in the being of Bob, the being of Lawrence or, or Kirk, the being of all of you, there's, there's a, we only have one person. In the being of God, God's different. Of course he would be. He's transcendent of us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay? And that's, by the way, that's not, um, I heard one time somebody saying, uh, uh, you know, um, a, 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 um, where God's you know, using baby talk. For, no, that's how they, call, they talk to each other. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay? That's why they know each other. So, so that's not, uh, you know, uh, uh, an anthropopathism or whatever, anthropomorphism. Okay, very important you understand that. That's how they know each other. That's the revelation that God has given to us through his son and the spirit. So this word, God, in this passage, is speaking the transcendent character of the Lord God of Israel. This word refers to the Lord's complete sovereign power over all creation and every creature and every other nation and ruler as evidenced by fulfilled prophecy. Now the implication of this word emphasizes that the Lord Jesus Christ would sovereignly intervene and judge every unrepentant, unregenerate citizen of every nation in the world during the 70th week of Daniel and at his second advent. Now the word for holy one, kadosh, it's an adjective, it's in a substantive form, noun, and it appears in the second prophetic statement and it describes the Lord Jesus Christ as unique and that he's equal to the Father and the Spirit because he shares the same divine attributes of these two, which sets him apart from other human beings and angels. So when you use the word holy in relation to God, it always talks about his character is set apart from that of his creatures. Now, 
There are two categories of moral rational creatures. Moral rational creatures have volition, free will. Angels and human beings. Even the angels don't compare to him. Because the angels God has found fault with. It says that in the book of Job and other places. In fact, if you read Revelation, when the seven seal scroll was handed, uh, was out there, and nobody in heaven and earth or underneath the earth or above, anywhere on earth, angels and men, could open the seven sealed scroll because they were not worthy. And John was crying. An angel came up to him and says, don't cry, what are you crying for? The lamb has overcome. He was worthy. And why were the, so no one in heaven and earth, no angel or human being was worthy to open that seven sealed scroll. It appears, therefore, by implication, the inference is clearly that the angels had fallen. And of course, uh, Satan, and a lot of people like myself, see this as well, those who disagree, of course, uh, but uh, we see that just like Adam, the first man was the head over the human race, the federal head, Satan was also the federal head of the angels. In fact, he was the anointed cherub, it says. And one-third of the angels went with him, and two-thirds went with God. We know that from Revelation 12. So we see that this word, holy one, in the second prophetic statement, it uh, describes the Lord as unique and that he's equal to the Father and the Spirit because he shares the same divine attributes of these two, which sets him apart from other human beings and angels. Therefore, we see that this term, kadosh, holy one, is expressing the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ's character or moral perfection and excellence. And it means that he can have nothing to do with sinners, sinners unless they accept him as their savior. There's no other way to God. Now, this word is also found, if you recall, in Habakkuk 1.12, uh, where we have, uh, we see, if you look at Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, hold your place. Just flip back there, since we're in the same book. I think it's good to Nahum, yeah. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 1.12, it says, O Lord, you are, not, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die, O oh Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment, O oh rock, you have ordained them to punish. The holy ones there, as we just as we see in Habakkuk 1.12. So you can go back to Habakkuk 3.3. So this word is appeared in other places uh, for the Lord. So we see in both places, this word holy one, uh, and also in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3 in particular now, describes the God of Israel, Jesus Christ, as being unique and pure and the sense of possessing superior moral qualities and possessing certain essential qualities in contrast to human beings and angels. In other words, it describes God as being distinct from his creatures and creation, expressing his absolute perfect character, which is sinless in contrast to both angels and human beings. So therefore, this word speaks of God's transcendent character as creator and sovereign ruler over all creation and every creature. Now think about this. It's exciting to think about. We're supposed to grow up to become like Jesus Christ. He's the firstborn among many brethren. One reason, what God was trying to do, when he, at, our, at our justification, when we got saved, okay, simultaneously, when he declared us justified through faith in his son, he imputed his son's righteousness to at that moment and then declared us justified. So we have the holiness, the righteousness of God in us. And all three members of the Trinity dwell in us. Here's the other thing. We are right. Paul talks about us being identified with Christ and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection session at the right hand of the Father. We're part of the new humanity. Now, 
Notice we're identified with him, which means that when God looks at us, he looks at us, us as crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with this holy one. That's important. See, our sanctification is superior to the Old Testament sanctification. They used the animal sacrifices and the dietary regulations and observance of certain days. That's a substantive, re Christ is the substantive reality of those things, Paul says in Colossians 2. You and I have the historical uh, sanctification. We are in union with Christ. We're set apart to serve him. So when it, the baptism of the Spirit and our justification made us like Christ, holy. We are as holy as God. Now listen to me. We, don't ex we experience this holiness in our lives. This is, very important. this is very important. This is why we're holding up the whole thing for Satan. When we live the spiritual life, we're experiencing the holiness of God, our sanctification, being set apart to serve him exclusively. So we need to, so what we can get out of this is, since we know from New Testament revelation to the apostles that we are the holiness of God manifested incarnate in the world today. There's nobody like us. We're in union with him and God wants us to experience his holiness, his holy character in, in our lives, which is very impactful on our country. This is something the church in America has been deceived into thinking. That they don't see this stuff. They're not being taught this stuff. And this is why we're suffering as a country. And the church in America is suffering. You know? So we have, and the other thing is, at the rapture, when the rapture happens and we're in a resurrection body, our sanctification is perfected. The final stage. And we're perfectly holy like Jesus. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God didn't save us so that we could go sin again. We'll never want to sin again anyways. Because our will has been in bondage prior to our justification. Our sovereign, our, our will, our volition has been in bondage to sin and Satan. In other words, we had no other choice but to sin. Because that we, I mean, we choose, but we're, we choose. But what's the alternative? We live in, give in to the devil, we're deceived by the devil, and we give in to the sin nature. God came in, he came in and gave us an alternative lifestyle. One day we'll be perfected and we'll never want it to go and have the temptation or find any temptation attractive anymore when we're in a resurrection body. Because the sin nature will be gone, which is in our bodies right now. Okay? The body craves certain things and it wages war against our minds, our souls. Peter talks about that. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. So this holy one, we'll be coming back with him and we'll be perfectly holy at that time as well. And that is incredibly, this is what God wants. He wants the earth to be controlled by his people. You know, the world has no solution for its problems. Only the gospel can solve these problems. And we're going to manifest it at the second advent that the gospel does solve the world's problems because then we'll have perfect environment, no war, and we'll be reigning with Christ. And we'll be perfect rulers too. The world have never seen anything in its like ever. And that, because we're, because we're in union with the Holy One, whereas this people of the world, who God's trying to call out from the world through faith in his Son, to join him and reigning over this earth with his Son, the world doesn't have this. The world is trying to solve problems independently of God, which is the essence of evil. Before Satan, before what Satan's sin was, was arrogance and rebellion he didn't commit an act of immorality. He didn't have sex out of marriage or anything like that. He didn't, he didn't, you know, what he did was he lived independently of God. That's the essence of evil. Every act of sin, you could not even sin 
and still be engrossed in evil because you're trying to live independently of Jesus Christ. So anytime I hear any politician, you probably think the same thing, or any entertainer, you know, like with John Lennon, I used to love John Lennon, give peace a chance. You lost me, John, with Yoko. So anyways, to start with, you know, she was a band of blues. But at the end of the day, it's like, you're dreaming, you are dreaming. I imagine there's no heaven and all that stuff. I, you know, I was like, geez, John, you really went so far from she loves you, now you're singing that stuff. I was like, that really ticked me off. I was like, but hey, he's dece he was deceived. I mean, there's even some talk that he got saved toward the end there. All right, there's another story for another day. But here's the thing. Get peace a chance? Hey, you're dreaming. You're not in this world, you're not going to have peace. Because this is the devil's world, and the sin nature is running rampant in the world, and, the, and Satan is rebelling against God. This is a time of war. So this term, Kadosh, Holy One, is employed in the back of 3.3, and it indicates that the Lord Jesus Christ will exercise his righteous indignation, his wrath, against his enemies at his second advent, which will be an expression of his holy character and standards. Now, the reference to Teman, it says God will come from Teman. Teman uh, refers to a prominent city in Edom, and the prepositional phrase that follows it, translated from Mount Paran, which is Mahar Paran, it refers to the mountainous region, which was geographically located to the west of Edom, where the city of Teman was located. It was across the Valley of Gul, we call it, between the Sinai Peninsula to the south and Kadesh Barnea to the north, which was another mountainous area. Let me show you a, a, a map on the board of this particular area. Now, let me get my pen going here. Okay, so down here is Teman. Oh, come on, get out of there. There you go. Oh, it went. There's Teman. I just circled it for you, okay? And you see up here is Mount Paran. Sorry, I did a little. It's right there. My, Mount Paran. Let me I'll do a better job of drawing. Okay, so here's Teman. So this is what we call Jordan today, King of Jordan, okay? So it's gonna use, it, we see he's going to go to Mount Paran, okay? And then we see that here's the Mount of Olives up here. So I believe he's going to, we're tracking his movements militarily at the second advent. And so he's, he's here, and he's going to go to here, and then eventually he's going to go up to the Mount of Olives. Okay? So a comparison, a comparison of uh, uh, these two first prophetic statements in Habakkuk 3.3, if you look at Adam, Adam again with me, Habakkuk 3.3. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Salah. So we see a comparison of these two prophetic statements recorded in Habakkuk 3.3 indicate that at his second advent, the Lord Jesus Christ will travel from Teman and then to Mount Paran. This is what we know. You don't hear a lot about this in prophecy circles. They don't talk about this, but they should, I don't know, I haven't read anybody in a long time that even talk about this. It's out there. I think it's kind of interesting. We can track his movements a little bit, okay? So uh, what do they call it? Um, when we come back with him, so we're getting a little travel, a uh, little, you know, when you have travel arrangements, where you're going to travel on a trip, you go to trip, I'm going to go to Israel. I tell people, I, I haven't got, people ask me, we want to go to Israel. I say, yeah, I'd love to go to Israel. I want to do a tour of Israel. i love to, but I got, I got, I'm busy here. I can't do it. But one day I'm going to get there one day. So I know what my travel arrangements will be. Okay, I'm going to be going. I'll be going to Jordan, <laughs> and then I'll be going to <laughs> traveling between their team and, and uh, Mount Paran, and then I'm going to go to Mount of Olives one day, and I'm going to go when it's going to be really nice. Okay, when there's going to be a massive earthquake, and you're going to be there with me too. 
Isn't that exciting? Oh, you can't this. This, this world is boring compared to it. I mean, seriously, I, I get more entertainment. I, mean, I, I can't even watch television anymore half the time. You know, I got, you got most of you like this, too. You got Netflix and you got Prime. Half the time, I can't make up my mind what movie I want to watch anyways. I've seen them all probably a million. So I was like, yeah, I'd just rather go st study the Bible or something. It's more exciting to me. <laughs> it really is. I'm not making that up. It's, just, it's clear. I get bored with the world stuff, you know? So anyways, as we noted earlier, these two prophetic statements in Habakkuk 3.3 actually echo Isaiah 63, 1 through 3, because it asserts that the Lord comes from Edom with his garments covered in the blood of his enemies, which will take place at his second advent. And as we can see, <coughs> we'll go to it now, go to Isaiah 63, 1. We can see that this passage records God coming from Edom with blood on his garments. And it's never happened in history, but it will at the second advent according to Revelation 19, 13 and 15. All right, so you can hold your place. Go to Isaiah 63. We go to this the other the last uh, Wednesday. I think we did. Isaiah 63:1. Excuse me. Isaiah 63:1. This is even more incredible passage, I think, because it's describing what he's going to look like. And the poor, meek and mild, meek and mild Jesus, people forget, yeah, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he's also the Lion of Judah. Oh, I can't believe, I told you the story a couple of Christmases ago. My brother Kenny, his, uh, his daughter, um, Rachel, and uh, she's like a little old lady. She's so funny. She, I think she's like 14 now. I can't believe they grow up so fast. It's ridiculous. I remember they were little shrimps and everything, you know, like, like Kyle's, uh, Kyle and Suzanne bring their granddaughter. Uh, Emily, I just, Emily, I'm like, I just want to, it reminds me of, you know, I had little nieces and you know, I could, you know, give them a hug and everything. It's like, oh, this is so much, it's so fun, much fun. And so, and they're so, and they're so funny. And, uh, and then when I, you know, I was talking to her, she's 14, it's like, and they're watching, um, you know, the, the Chosen, and they're really into it. My, my brother said, oh, that's great, I said, that's great. But anyways, when I talk about Jesus, you know, and I mentioned this, I said, Jesus, he, he's, he, he doesn't do anything like that. I was like, oh yeah, Rachel, he does. He's, he's, he, he's tougher than any person you ever met. <laughs> and yes, he's going to do that because he's got to put down all these wicked people that are going to try to kill us all, okay? Which they couldn't do if they wanted to. I said, you know, they, they, so she didn't have a proper view of, the, of Jesus because, like the rest of the world, she has, because she didn't know her Bible, like we do. So that's why she didn't understand this about Jesus. So I had to be very patient with her, and I had the whole room there, which is really cool. I love these, so people are hearing me talk to her, so I'm, I'm very aware of, you know, I didn't want to go, Rachel, what's wrong with you for crying out loud? What is your father and mother teaching you the Bible here? You should be listening to your Uncle Billy for crying out loud. You know all this right now. And I didn't do that, trust me. But I was thinking that, anyways. And so, uh, so we had an interesting conversation about it and got to know what, what she knows about Jesus. And I mention all this because the people of the world, they like to think of Jesus. Oh, he's so sweet and nice and, you know, he died for my sins on the cross. That's good Did you know that. But he also rose from the dead. And it also says he'll come, if you read the Apostolic Creed, and they, know, they, say, they recite this in the Catholic Church, he'll come again to judge the living and the dead. So he's, yeah, he's a holy person. 
Uh, he's, his character is transcendent than, from men and angels. So you better take him seriously. So Isaiah 63, 1. Who is this coming from Edom? Ah, got a map of Edom for you here. Look at this. We've got a map of Edom. And get my pen going. Here's Edom. Okay? And the cities, uh, we saw Teman and Basra, they're below this. You see Basra up here that's to the north. And if you go further up here, is Judah, the kingdom of Judah. And you have Jerusalem up there. Okay? So this is Edom. And we studied Edom in great detail, if you recall, and what book? Obadiah, the book we studied in the past. So isn't it funny how all these things tie together? And the uh, good thing about these little books, these, the minor prophets, we're learning things that a lot of people don't pay attention to, don't know about with regards to prophecy and the tribulation, the second, second advent of Christ, because they don't study these books. So they're missing out on a lot. We're not. Isaiah 63, 1, who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garment stained crimson, red, okay? For those who know who crimson is. Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. It's Jesus. Why are your garments red, they'll ask him, like those of one treading the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger as righteous indignation. Why? Because he's a holy one. And trod them down in my wrath. And their blood spattered on my garments. And I stained all my clothing. That's God. That's Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he's also the Lion of Judah. He's the greatest military captain of all time. In fact, Napoleon once said, "There's no I, I rule by fear. He rules by love. He could call myriads upon, he could call myriads upon myriads of individuals, both men and angels, to go and do anything he asks. But they do it not out of fear of him, but they do it out of love. That's a great soldier. The soldier of Christ Jesus, he's serving a captain that died for him on the cross. And actually, he accomplished the greatest military victory of all time, greatest victory of all time, with, by providing us our so great salvation and destroying the works of the devil at Calvary. And he did it in his weakness as a human being. So he destroyed the enemy, Satan, and sin in his weakness. The weakness of God is greater than the weakness of uh, strength of men, okay? And Satan, for that matter. So that is an incredible passage that we see. Blood stain on his garment. Go now to Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse 1, and we'll wrap it up. <coughs> <coughs> Revelation 19, 1. I won't be able to, for those who have the notes, I won't be able to get through all those notes that mean, you can, Obadiah 18, I was going to take you there, but I, this is as far as I'll go, because it's, I could be here all day. So it says in Revelation 19.1, I knew that would happen, so rather have more than not enough. Revelation 19.1, after this, 
I heard what sounded like the roar of great many of great multitude in heaven shouting. What, after what? After the events of Revelation 5, 6 through 18, okay? The seven seal trumpet of bold judgments. The, the wrath of the Lamb during, that'll be poured out during the last three and a half years of the 70th week that we saw in the, in the chart, in Daniel's 70th week chart, okay? Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. That's going on right now as we speak. Is that the Babylonian world system, monetary system that's in this world today. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, as they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders representing the church and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like the peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. We're the bride of Christ. Read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 24 to the end of that chapter. We're the bride of Christ. Fine linen, bright and clean, that's us, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints, rewards. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, which will take place during the millennial reign. And he added, These are the true words of God. And at this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of wisdom, prophecy. Worship God. At the end of the second session, we'll be talking about the worship of God. Because it's related to the millennial reign, of course. Verse 11. Now, we're turning to the descent from heaven, the, th the throne room of God, the, th the third heaven, passed into the stellar unit as the second heaven, into the earth's atmosphere. Here we come. When the saints come marching in, here we are. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, the apocalyptic literature. He won't be literally riding a white horse, in other words. But he's coming back, and he doesn't need a white horse to ride on. White horse was very important in the ancient world because it talked about a warrior, a successful in conquering. So it's apocalyptic literature. So he is coming back, but it's describing him in terms that the first century could understand. He's coming back to destroy. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And his name written on him that no one knows but he himself. The blazing fire speaks of judgment. The many crowns means he's the ruler of all the rulers. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. His name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Sharp sword coming out of his mouth? Not literally. Apocalyptic literature. What does that mean? His word is omnipotent. You're dead. <laughs> we don't know anybody like that, but he can do that. I mean, think about what he did when the storm, and he's got the apostles, and he's sleeping, and he comes and he's like, Jesus, we're going to fall in the water. We're going to get killed by the, the storm. And he gets up and he goes, oh, you wrecked my nap. And he goes, okay, here we go. Be still. There you go. And we're still. Okay? That's, that's, how he, that's how he spoke the universe into existence. Okay? Be still. He'll rule them with an iron scepter. 
which alludes to capital punishment. You want to go against him, capital crime, you're dead. I'm executing you. Not like our country, we don't like to execute the criminals. Criminals. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh has his name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, the carcasses of horses and their riders in the flesh of all people, free and small and great. Then I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Remember, the eastern armies led by China coming across the dried up Euphrates, Revelation 16, to wage war against the Antichrist. There's pushback, okay? So they're fighting each other, Valley Jezreel, right? Then they have to turn their weapons and go, oh, we got a bigger enemy here, the aliens have landed. There we go. And they start shooting at us. So then he says, I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider and the horse and his army, but the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet. And that's talking about his you know, soul, because remember, he gets killed. So his soul goes, and he goes, he's thrown in the lake of fire forever, alive. It's talking about his soul. Of course, he's going to have a resurrection body that's going to be able to allow him to go to the wrath of God and the lake of fire forever, just like every other unregenerate person. But he's the first to go, and he gets thrown in the lake of fire before Satan does. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive, see, in a lake of fire, a burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword, and that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. No chapter break in the original. Follow the chronology. And I saw an angel, chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down under heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. And he seized the dragon, and that ancient serpent who was the devil, or Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. Why, we'll not have any more war during those, that period. <coughs> so you think about it. So there's, there's no war during the millennial reign, because he's in prison, right? Okay? So why do you think we have war today? Because of what's going on in the angelic realm, okay? He threw him into the abyss and locked it and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until... A thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So, we see that after, after, if you go back now to Habakkuk 3, verse 3, and I want to close real quick with this. You see this word Salah, it says, God came from Teman and a holy one from Mount Paran, Salah. The word Salah is actually another musical notation. It's an unknown musical or liturgical marker, and it was evidently some type of liturgical direction for those participating in uh, performing the song. So, it's interesting. Many believe, and I'm, I'm in agreement with it, it's basically a, like an interlude in the music, a rest in the music. In other words, you get to, he's marking the thing, think about what we just said in the first two statements, Habakkuk 3.3. 3. In other words, meditate upon it. What's the purpose for it? To worship, which is what the last statement in the verse is about that we're going to worship him during the millennial reign we're going to worship him when we get to heaven resurrection body, rapture of the church or our death, whichever verse we go, we'll be in the throne room of God worshiping him okay? we're going to be worshiping him down here on the earth and there's many forms and the greatest form of worship that we can have is not just singing you know, most Christians think that's when you talk about worship and they worship director worship director, the pastor's a worship director Heck, you could be a worship director if you're not even a pastor. Why? Because Paul says in Romans 12, 
It talks about when you live the spiritual life, it's your spiritual service of worship. Okay? So you worship Jesus by putting, learning his word. You're worshiping now. And I'm, it's a great form of worship for me as the pastor teaching his word. It's the greatest form I could ever do. And then when we put it into practice and live what, on based upon what we've been taught, what the Spirit's taught us in Scripture, that is an act of worship. It's not just music. Music is one expression of worship. So we'll talk about that in the second session. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for everyone here this, this morning in the first session. We pray that this lesson will be a great blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your Son, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In his name we pray. Amen.